0: So we're back today in our study through the Gospel of Mark. And of course, we just read that that long section together. We're going to look at a few things here in this section, and then we're going to look more specifically at uh, verses 18 to 23. Um, But let me start with this. In response to a newspaper article that had asked the question... This is a long time ago. Uh, What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote this. Dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I am. That's what he said. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton said, I am. And if the truth be told, that is really the answer to the question. What's wrong with the world? We are. What's wrong with the world? The problem is within us. And Jesus tells us here in the passage that we read that the problem of evil is not something that is out there, but rather it's something residing in the heart of each And every one of us. Now in theological terms, this is what we know as the doctrine of the depravity of man. And the depravity of man does not mean that people are not capable of doing anything good. What it means is that at the the core of our being as people, we are broken. We are ruined. uh, We are Sinners, and so this uh, this doctrine of the depravity of man. This is the great dividing line between humanism, with its insistence that people are basically good in the core of their being, and the biblical worldview that says that men and women are ruined, broken, and evil at the core of their being. So evil is a problem of the heart, which is the heart of the problem. So the heart is the heart of the problem. So that that's what we're going to look specifically at today. But before we do that, there are just three things I want to touch on really quickly from the text that we read. First of all, Notice as we read through the text there, um, there were a few references to the tradition of the elders. So this comes up as we go through the Gospels, the tradition of the elders. And the, um, you know, so the Pharisees, they were offended because the disciples of Jesus weren't following the tradition of the elders. And then Jesus made reference to uh, the tradition of the elders. What, what is the tradition of the elders? Well, this was something that was, um, although at this time it wasn't a written code, it was, it was an oral code and, and it was very binding in the minds of the religious leaders of the day. So the, the written word of God, of course, uh, came to them through Moses and the prophets but over a few hundred year period of time after the Babylonian captivity, they developed this tradition that was placed on top of God's word. And their, their thinking about it was that they would, uh, because the, the nation had you know slipped into idolatry so many times and the nation had fallen under judgment, their idea was we are going to put a fence around the law so that. You, you're going to have to hurdle this fence before you can even get to the law. So they're going to kind of protect uh, the law from being broken. They're going to protect people from actually breaking the law by, by putting these traditions around it. But here's what happened. After time, it was indistinguishable between what, was, what God had said and what men had said. And so by the time of Jesus, the tradition of the elders in the minds of the Jewish leaders, it actually had more authority than the written word. And we see that here because Jesus talks about how they, they blatantly contradicted what God had said in order to keep their commandment. Now, today, if you're familiar at all with, with Judaism, uh, Judaism has um, what's called the Talmud, Talmud. And the Talmud is a compilation of many of these things that were at one time known as the tradition of the elders. So in the time of Jesus, this was an oral law, but it it later was put in written form. And it came in, uh, first of all, the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a commentary on on the Torah. And then there was the Gemara, which was the commentary on the Mishnah. And then the rabbinical literature and writings and so forth. So if you talk to a religious Jewish person today, um, they're going to make reference to the Talmud. And and so it's in the Talmud that we have um, these kinds of things that Jesus was, was actually combating at the time. So that is what the tradition of the elders was. Then in reference to the, to the tradition of the elders, I want you to notice Jesus refers to them in verse seven as the teaching and commandments or the doctrines and commandments of men. So as far as Jesus was concerned, this tradition had zero authority. Now, this is where the conflict would come between Jesus and the elders. You know, when you're reading through the Gospels, you find these times where they're accusing Jesus of breaking the law, and it kind of seems like he is breaking the law. Well, he is. He's breaking their law. He's breaking their interpretation. Jesus did not see this as binding in any way, shape, or form. He referred to these things, the the tradition of the elders, he referred to them as simply uh, the, the doctrines and the commandments of men. So as far as Jesus was concerned, they had no authority. Now, th- this was a huge issue in this period of time, but this has been perpetuated throughout the long history of the church, not in the exact same way, but the church and even individual uh, you know, denominations or even individual congregations can uh, develop traditions That at a certain point, they seem like this must be what God said, because it's so enforced, it's so emphasized, it's so talked about. But like Jesus, we need to look at those things and say, uh, those are just the doctrines and commandments of men. And Some are okay, and there's nothing the matter with tradition, at least not just, you know, uh, just because it's tradition doesn't mean it's it's wrong. But if if the tradition supersedes what God has said in his word, if the the tradition comes along and begins to restrict the people of God from the the, the liberty that they have in Christ and things like that, that's when it becomes a problem and that's when it needs to be disregarded. And that's what was happening at the time of Christ. And so he here in um, verses six and seven. You know, he, well, actually in verse five, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? So that was their tradition. To eat bread with unwashed hands was 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 a grievous sin in their understanding. But notice how Jesus responded. He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me. This kind of worship, Jesus said, was vain. It was worthless. It was unacceptable to God. In vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. So certain traditions are good and we appreciate them, we respect them, you know, we honor them, but we never want to elevate them above what God has declared in his word. And sometimes it's a good practice just to kind of just break down the tradition. And especially if you see it beginning to, uh, you know, solidify in such a way that it's, it's really hindering what God has clearly stated in the scriptures. So, One other thing here that I want us to note. Um, Jesus said here in the, what verse is it here? Um, It's actually a a little note that's added by Mark. Uh, Verse 18, it says, So he said to them, are you thus without understanding? He's talking to the disciples here now because they they weren't quite understanding what was going on. He said, are you you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, here is what I want to point out, thus purifying all foods. This is Mark's note on what Jesus just said. And Mark concludes from this, that all all food is now uh, purified in the sense that there's nothing now that's unclean um, from the standpoint of food like it previously was under the Mosaic system. So Jesus just released everybody from the dietary restrictions that were part of the Mosaic law. And so but but we know from our study in the book of acts for example we know how the jews you know they really clung to these uh, traditions and even the apostles themselves some of them uh, after they had received jesus as a messiah they still struggled with the uh, the dietary things those, those traditions and uh, those those previous laws were so ingrained in them but jesus liberated Everyone from those uh, those those food laws that are found in the, the book of Leviticus is where they the majority of those are are mentioned, and the only reason I bring this up is because astoundingly uh, some in the church throughout the ages have adopted the dietary laws and placed them on believers in jesus and Uh, you know, sought to bring them into conformity to these things. And why, why would we ever do that? You know, there, some of you have heard of the Seventh-day Adventist Uh, and the Seventh-day Adventist are people who, there's, there's kind of different um, divisions among the Seventh-day Adventists now. There are those who are very rigid and very uh, strict and conforming to the ideas of the Founder. Of Seventh-day Adventism, Ellen G. White. And, and that is really more kind of cultic. And then there are those who don't adhere so closely to that. There are those who, who definitely put more of an emphasis on Jesus and the gospel, but they, they still will oftentimes abide by the dietary rules. And um, I remember when I was living in London, there was a restaurant in town and it had a really interesting food, you know, you just go in this restaurant, I'm like what, what kind of food is this in here? And come to find out it was a restaurant that was owned and operated by Seventh-day Adventists. So they had a menu that really, you know, conformed to kind of the mosaic dietary code. Um, now, if, if you want to go into Leviticus and develop a menu based on Leviticus, you're perfectly free to do that. But the moment you think that that is something that determines your spirituality or that's going to bring you closer to God or push push you back further from God, that's where everything goes bad. And so we just have to know that there there are no um, dietary restrictions that apply to believers with any spiritual significance. And Mark just puts that little footnote in, uh, Jesus purified all food with that statement there. So now let's go back to what we really want to, to focus on here today. And that is just this whole issue of the, the, the heart being the root of the problem And and let me read again from verse 18 on to the end. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding? Also, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the person. So, this here, like I said, is a statement to the effect that that the heart of man is corrupt. Now, Now, Jesus is only restating what has already been said by the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, Jeremiah said this. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Or, another translation, is incurably sick. So this is the prophet Jeremiah. He's, he's diagnosing the, the heart of, of man. Uh, deceitful above everything else. Desperately wicked, incurably sick. And then he, he goes on. And, of course, Jeremiah is a prophet. So he's speaking for God. And uh, he says, who can know it? and and what's implied there in the question who can know it is the implication is no one can really know how evil they really are we we would never dream that we are as evil as we are. We, we might even look at certain people and certain types of evils, and, and we might say, well, man, I can tell you for sure I would never do anything like that. But did you know that under certain circumstances, you might very well find yourself doing the thing you swore you never would do? Or the thing that you thought, I don't even have a capacity for that? Or you'd be surprised at what people will do given the right circumstances, because this is the condition of the heart. It is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked or incurably sick. Now, all the way back in Genesis chapter six, verse five, the Lord said something similar. It says this, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, what an indictment. Every intent of the heart was only evil continually. And now, as we just read here in our our text, notice Jesus refers to evil thoughts, adulteries, sexual immorality, murder, these evil things come from within. Now, when you grasp that this is what the Bible teaches, it it helps to understand why there's such opposition to the Bible coming from the culture. You see, because like I said, this is the dividing line between humanism and a biblical worldview. Now, now when I say humanism, I'm talking about humanism in the sense of, you know, what we know today as secular humanism. Uh, we can even call it atheistic humanism. And, and the philosophy is that, you know, people are essentially good and our problems are all due to things outside of us. And whether it's the, uh, whether it's economics or whether it's uh, the environment, or whether it has to do with, with education or or lack thereof, uh, this is the this is the view of the world that 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 people are basically good, and you just have to work hard enough to uh, you know get down to that that heart of gold um, that Neil Young was searching for all those years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep searching for that heart of gold. Um, and he is getting old, so, you know. Um. But, but that's, that's the world's mentality. So when the Bible says, oh, no, no, that's, that's not reality. Uh, the, the human heart is deceitful. And that's where the conflict comes in. But look, you know, we, we put a lot of um, stock in empirical evidence Uh, You know, science is based, you know, scientific facts are based on empirical evidence. uh, Things that you can observe, things that you can see over and over again, repeated patterns and things like that. Well, guess what? The empirical evidence is that the Bible is right. Because this is what we see coming out of the heart of man, coming out of our own hearts. I remember when I was young and I. You know, I, I, I kind of started on my uh, career of sin in my early teens. And, you know, up until that point, of course I was a sinner and just like everybody else, and I did a lot of bad things. But I you know, I didn't think of them as all that bad. But but I remember a point in my life where I really started to delve deeper into sinful behavior. And and I started engaging in, in things that I seriously had previously thought I would never, ever do. And I remember like this moment of truth one time, I think it was about 17. I was at a party, I was drinking and, you know, carousing and all the stuff that you do at those parties. And I remember I I walked into the bathroom and, you know, there in the bathroom, I I glanced at myself in the mirror. And all of a sudden I had this thought, a frightening thought, and it was, man, what are you becoming? And, And I was like, I got to get out of this bathroom. I got to get away from this mirror. This is frightening. <laughs> but, but it was true. I, I, was, I was becoming somebody that I swore I would never be. But you see that potential for all that evil was, was always residing there in me because that is the condition. And so the heart is corrupt, but notice the heart it's the, it's the corrupt heart that brings the defilement. That's what Jesus said here. Notice he said, all these things come from within and they defile a man. Now, the defiling is, is the actual um, engagement in the things that he's just described. So, you know, as long as these things never come out... You know, in, in one sense, the person doesn't appear to be defiled anyway because it's all hidden under the surface. And, and you can go on and appear to be a, a certain way. But what happens? These things eventually start to overflow and, and then the, de- the defilement then is present. These evil... Uh, evils come from within and they defile the man. In other words, our actions proceed from our hearts and it's, it's our actions that, that show the defilement, but, but they come out of the heart. Jesus said in another place, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he, in the context, he was talking about those who were, they were saying the right thing, but they were really evil and he said, "How do you being evil, or how is it that you being evil? How is it that you're saying these these you know these lofty, you know, seemingly good things?" He said, "Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." And so, this is the teaching of Scripture. Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, in chapter four, verses seventeen through nineteen, listen to what he said. He said, "Unbelievers are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God." Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over, so here it is, they've given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So what he's saying is that because of the heart condition, there comes a point when they give themselves over to the sensuality, that's the defiling point that Jesus is talking about here. And so the heart is corrupt and defilement ultimately comes because of what is in the heart. So here's the question, what is the solution to this problem? You know, if if this is really the problem in the world, how can it possibly be fixed? Well, I'll tell you how it cannot be fixed. It cannot be fixed through climate change. <laughs> it cannot be fixed through everybody getting a master's degree. It, it cannot be fixed through, uh, you know, the the kinds of things that are often being suggested as, well, this is why the problem exists. So we just have to fix this stuff and then the problems will go away. No, it doesn't work that way. Did you know that when the Hitler and the Nazis came to power in Germany, did you know Germany was at the time, probably the most well-educated nation in the world? Do you know that many of the leaders of the Third Reich, they were people with PhDs? They were people who had gone to universities. They were people that had been professors. You know, it it wasn't a lack of civilization in Germany that led to the barbarism of Nazism. It was a failure to recognize what the real issue was was. And, and as we live in a crazy situation today, and there's all of these different voices telling us that, well, well, this is what we need to do to fix the problem. Nobody is thinking about what the real root of the problem is. The real root of the problem is the heart. How do we change the heart? And first of all, until somebody acknowledges that, yeah, that is the problem, we're not going to get anywhere. But But let's just say, people recognize it. Let's just say they say, okay, well, you're, okay, you're right. It is the heart. Even, you know, an individual person, all right, you're right. It is the heart. My heart is evil. My heart is corrupt. So what do I do about it? There's only one thing that can be done. You need a new heart. You need a transplant. You know, that, that is, that happens, right? Physically. There, there, in some cases, um, the, the physical heart becomes so dysfunctional that it, it has to be replaced. And we live in a day and an age where they can actually do that. Of course, previous generations couldn't do that. But, but today, because of technology, we can, we can actually do a heart transplant and save somebody's life. I know people that have had heart transplants. That's what the Bible prescribes. Every human being needs a heart transplant. And listen to what God said he would do. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws now now that 's god 's word to israel and and that 's what He will do for them. This is a, kind of like a description of the new covenant um, but but the truth that will ultimately apply to to Israel as a nation is a truth that's been brought to the whole world through the gospel of Jesus. That's what happens when we come to Christ. He gives us a new heart. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, we have, uh, again, a a description here of the, the effects of the covenant. This is a covenant that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart. So that's what happens, and that's what must happen. You see, that's why we so often talk about a change from the inside out. That's what the gospel is, is all about. The gospel is about taking the heart of stone out and replacing it with a heart of flesh, so to speak. It's about taking that, that evil heart out of us and, and putting a new heart a heart after God within us. So this is what happens through the gospel and receiving the gospel. This is is what happens. We get a heart transplant. When a person receives Jesus as their savior and Lord, God does a miracle. He changes the heart. He puts a new heart within us a heart that desires new things, a heart that desires the things that please him. As Paul put it to the Philippians, he works in us because of this uh, presence of his spirit and this new heart he gives us. He works in us both to will and to do what pleases him. That's what he does. Now, remember the story of Nicodemus and, and Nicodemus, he's, this, he's a great religious leader. He was a Pharisee, but he was actually, he wasn't a hypocritical Pharisee. He was a sincere Pharisee. And there were sincere Pharisees. And Nicodemus was one of them. And he was a ruler of the Jews. So he was, he was not just a Pharisee, but he was also part of the ruling body of Israel at the time. He was a sincere man. And he was, a, a, you know, according to his standard, he was a godly man. And he saw something extraordinary in Jesus. So he comes to Jesus at night and he says, teacher, we know that you've come from God because no one can do what you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said this to him. He said, unless, he said, you must be born again. And unless one is born again, they cannot even perceive the kingdom of God nor can they enter the kingdom of God. So this is, I mean, it's kind of a funny response to Nicodemus, hey, we know your teacher come from God, but that's all he says. But Jesus knows what he wants to say. Jesus knows that he's wanting to find out like, okay, what do I need? And so he tells him, you need to be born again. And so Nicodemus, he's a little perplexed. He says, well, what does that mean? I'm old. I can't go a second time back into my mother's womb. And Jesus says, no, you must be born of water and the spirit. You must have a spiritual birth. And and that's what we're talking about here. This heart um, transplant that we're talking about is really, it's, it's the new birth. It's being born again. And you know, actually the, um, the, the word there in John's gospel that's translated um, born again, it can be also translated born anew. And it also can be translated born from above. And, and it's really all of those things. I, I'm born again. It's a second birth. I've had, of course, I, I had a first birth. That's why I'm here. But now this is a second birth. But born anew, yes, it's it's a new heart that's given to me, and born from above, it's something that is uh, coming from God to us through the Spirit. And so, Paul, in looking at those now who have become born again, this is what he says. In writing to the Corinthians, he says this, and, and I'm going to read it to you in three translations. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's our translation right here, the New King James. And, and just note, not I don't know if anybody is bothered by this, but but... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's, of course, applies to both men and women. But what I want you to notice is this. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, listen to the New International Version. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone The new is here. You see, that's what we're talking about. And then the NLT, the New Living Translation, says anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. I love that. Has become a new person. The old life is gone, the new life has begun. You see, that is what the gospel is about. And that's what Jesus came to do. But you see, it always works this way. You know, nobody's gonna go down and just show up at the hospital and say, hey, could you give me a heart transplant? Um, I don't know, I just was out jogging today and I thought, you know, maybe I ought to get a new heart. So I showed up and I just thought, you know, could I get a new heart transplant? Nobody's gonna do that. Why are people gonna even inquire about a, a potential heart transplant because they know I got a heart problem. I can't keep living with this heart. I, I'm gonna die if something doesn't happen. That's the person who goes in for a heart transplant. And, and the same is true when it comes to all of this in the spiritual realm. You see, until a person recognizes the problem is my heart, they're not going to seek the solution. That's why Jesus and the prophets before him, and the apostles after him. That's why they told us the hard things that nobody wants to hear today. You know, they're, they're like a doctor. You know, sometimes doctors have to give hard news to people. Uh, people don't want to hear that. They want to hear, no, no, I, everything's fine. It's, good. it's all good. Doctor says, well, no, actually, it's not all good. We, we, you know, it's bad. And we got to do something in order to remedy this. And that's what the scriptures do. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus was doing right here. He's showing that, look, the, the problem is a heart problem. And he came to solve that problem. And so for our world today, you know, people can, they can put a, a bandage on it. They can, you know, try to mask it or cover it up or, you know, do some self-improvement type of thing to better themselves in, in certain ways. But until you get down to the real core of the issue, nothing really will ultimately change. There has to be a change of heart and that only comes by receiving Christ and receiving the new heart. As God said, I will put a new heart within you. And for those of you that have done that, and, and that's happened to me, and I know, and you know as well, um, and, and I think we, we would all agree with this, I, I'm, I'm not the person that I'm going to be but thank God, I'm not the person that I used to be either because of that new heart and that renewal that the Spirit brings about in our lives. So two things as we close. Let's just, let's just remember when we think of things on uh, you know just the larger level of, of life as it surrounds us right now, let's not forget that really the, the solution to the world's problem it comes down to the individual human heart. You know, John Wesley, uh, the famous revivalist preacher back in the 1700s in England and also in the colonies here, um, he, would, he, he was very um, consistent in his preaching of one message. And his one message was, you must be born again. And people would say to him, well, why do you always preach? You must be born again. And he said, because you must be born again. But Wesley understood that the problem was that the heart was deceitful and desperately wicked. And, and, it, need, and it needed to change. And, and as he went about his journeys and you know traveled hundreds of thousands of miles on horseback to, to preach the gospel to his countrymen, in England and so forth, um, you know, he, one time somebody asked him, you know, what are you doing to save the world? And he said, well, I'm saving it the old fashioned way, one soul at a time. But you know, that's the only way the world will ever be saved. It, it, because the world is made up of people. And until the hearts of people are changed, the world will not change. And so as we think of the, the world around us, the world that we're in, let's not miss this. Everybody needs a heart transplant. Everybody needs a new heart. And that's what the gospel brings. And finally, personally, I'm just asking you today, have you received that new heart? Have you come to that place where you've recognized that, no, my, my heart is corrupt? Now, you know, even as a Christian, we, we still, we have this, this really interesting dynamic, even as believers, where we still have the old heart in the sense that the old nature is still there, but we've also been made partakers of the divine nature. So we have two natures, believers do, and we find that they're many times in conflict, But our objective and goal as believers is to feed and to cater to the new nature. And and as we do that, the, the old nature is starved. And so the old person that we used to be fades more and more into the distance with the passing of time. And one day that will all be completely changed. But right now, today, where are you? Personally, are you that person who now possesses two natures, and there, there's the conflict, and you sense it, but you're feeding the spirit and getting the victory, and the old is fading into the to the to the distance, and, and the new is is surfacing. Great, that's where that's where we need to be. Uh, if it's going the other direction, then stop, turn around, start, start feeding the new nature. But maybe there's somebody here today who has not even yet received the new heart, but that comes through receiving Christ through receiving the gospel. And and that's the miracle. And I never want us to forget this because I think it's so easy these days to kind of just, uh, forget. And, you know, we get in this idea of, um, I don't know. It's just Christians, religious, and now the term evangelical. And, you know, I hear people say, oh, I used to be an evangelical. And it's like, that's religion. Forget that. The question is, do you have a living, vital relationship with God? That's the gospel. And that's what happens when we receive the new heart that new heart is remember we are born again we are born anew we are born from above and and the way that takes place is uh, we'll go back to nicodemus for one second so nicodemus is saying well how can this be how can would I go back into my mother's womb a second time and jesus basically said no this is how it is god loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how the heart is changed by believing in the son. Believing personally in him. Believing not just merely intellectually that Jesus came and lived and so forth, but no, believing he is the son of God. He died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the dead for my justification. He calls me to follow him. And that's what I'm gonna do. That's how the heart is changed. And so, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you are, offering to each and every one of us the most amazing offer, a new heart, a new life. Lord, you're you're offering to take the heart of stone out from us and to replace it with a heart of flesh. And Lord, thank you that for many of us, we have received that. And oh, how great it is, Lord, Even though we know that we're not what we ultimately will be, we just thank you that we're not what we used to be. And Lord, as we look at our world, may we not lose sight of the great need for the gospel. And help us, Lord, to spread the news as the opportunity arises. And, and Lord, I would just pray if there's anyone among us, any person here today in desperate need of that heart change, in desperate need of that new heart, help them to open their heart and receive you as the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.